We read the Holy Scriptures this evening in the book of Genesis, chapter 22. Genesis 22. Genesis 22, and we read verses 1 through 19. 1 through 19 of Genesis 22. This in connection with the scripture that we consider this evening in Romans 8 He that spared not his own son. Genesis 22, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder, and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went, both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad. Neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. 
So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word in Genesis chapter 22. And now we turn to the New Testament, to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The text that we consider is verses 31 and 32. We will read together Romans 8, verses 28 through the end of the chapter. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verses 31 and 32, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, these are great words that the Apostle Paul gives us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Those three little words with which he begins, God for us. And that's the banner over this concluding section of this tremendous chapter in Holy Writ, which is chapter 8 of the book of Romans. A chapter written for the encouragement of the saints in this present age, beleaguered by reason of the sufferings thereof, beleaguered by reason of the hostility that they experience by the hand of the wicked and the ungodly, a chapter which the Apostle Paul encourages the church, a chapter brimming with confidence and assurance and comfort as the Apostle Paul directs our eye to the glory that is to come, a glory so great that he says even the sufferings of this present are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is about to be revealed in us. This concluding section in verses 
31 through the end of the chapter, what shall we then say to these things? I imagine that the Apostle Paul, as he was writing this, or as he was speaking this, that if he was writing it, that his hand was shaking with the amount of confidence and triumph and victory that he knew through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that if he was speaking this, that his voice quivered with the assurance and the triumph that he presents here, not for him only, but for all of them that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is the highest pitch of this chapter. This is the, the finale of the symphony that he has been describing from verses 1 through the following. And now here he comes to the conclusion. All the strings tied together in this glorious anthem of praise. And it begins this way, What shall we then say to these things? Now he asks us, what shall we say? What shall we say to these things? These things, go back to verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. What shall we say to these things that the, the sufferings of this present are not worthy to be compared with the glory? What shall we say to these things that all things work together for good to them that love God? What shall we say to these things that the salvation of the, of the believer is so immutably certain, founded upon the bedrock of the eternal counsel of God, whom He did predestinate all the way to them He also glorified? And the Apostle Paul gives us the answer. This is what we shall say. If God be for us, who can be against us? And now that idea here, this question form, if God before us, who can be against us? They're questions, but there's zero uncertainty in these questions. These aren't questions to make things uncertain, but these are, these are the questions of confidence. These are questions whereby He engages us. He, he puts it to us here, these truths, and He asks you, He says, what shall you say? If God before us, who can be against us? Because listen, If God be for you, if you have the living God on your side, well, that means everything. Because this is God. This is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if God be on your side, truly, who can be against us? Well, it's our privilege this evening to consider together these words, uh, and these, these three words, particularly God for us. And we do that under the, under the divisions. In the first place, the meaning. In the second place, the demonstration. And in the, in the third place, the assurance. If God be for us. The meaning of that in the first place. So as we said, the if there is not an if of uncertainty. It is an if of argument. He is presenting an argument here. And he uses that word if as a way of engaging us, as a way of getting us to think, as a way of getting us to track with Him as He, as he runs through this argument. If God be for us, who can be against us? And the, the operative word here, the great word in the text, is precisely that word, God. If God be for us. Put it that way. This is God of whom He speaks. God, the the divine being, the maker of the heavens and the earth, 
one who is not like the creature dependent upon another for his existence and all of the rest, but God who is eternally self-sufficient. This is God, the one that Isaiah 40 reveals to us, who says, to whom then shall ye liken me, or shall, by, shall I be equal, saith the Lord. This is the one to whom the nations are as a drop of the bucket. This is the one who, who measures the earth in, in scales and, and all of the, that revelation there in Isaiah 40. Well, if God, if the maker of the heaven and the earth, the omnipotent one who accomplishes his good pleasure, the one whose counsel cannot be frustrated, whose purpose shall stand, the one who declares the end from the beginning, if God be for us, who can be against us? So what's this idea of for us? For us. Well, you'll notice in the text there's this contrast between that God who is for us and that which is against us. Who can be against us? That God is for us means then that God is not against us. That this God who made heaven and earth and who rules all things, the Lord reigneth, let the people tremble, that this God is not out to get us. He's not out to destroy us. He's not out for our harm. He means no ill will. Rather, He's for us. Which means that He's on our side. Which means that He's for our good. Which means that His heart is filled with this zeal to do us good and to bless us and to give us everything that we need. For us here, what that means is that in His attitudes, in God's attitudes towards us, He is for us. It means that in His thoughts that He has towards us, these are not thoughts against us, but they are thoughts that are for us. It means that in His counsel, in His eternal purpose, that we are right at the center of that in Jesus Christ, and all things are so arranged as to be for our good. That God is for us means that God in His administration, His providential administration, His sovereign governance of all things in heaven and earth, that this God who rules all things and governs all things is a God for you and for your good. Well, if God be for us, who can be against us? A couple things uh, when it comes to that translation there. The King James Version translates it properly, who can be against us? Other translations, not improperly, put it, who is against us? And they, it all comes down to the same idea. And the King James Version translates it this way, who can be against us? The idea there is not that there are no enemies against the people of God. But the idea of that text, who can be against us, that translation who can so be against the children of God as to prevail against them, as to overcome them, as to ruin them, as to destroy them, as in the end ultimately uh, to, to, to do them harm? But that other translation, which puts it this way, if God be for us, who is against us, that's not a bad translation either. Because that translation brings out the fact that the Apostle Paul is well aware that there are things against, that are directed against, that are opposed to the sons and daughters of God. And the Apostle Paul knew all about them. The idea of the text is not that there are, there are no enemies. The idea of the text is if God be for us, what are these? And what can they do? 
As the psalmist says, if the Lord is on my side, what shall I fear? What can man do unto me, one who has God on his side? Well, as we said, the Apostle Paul was not ignorant of hostile forces opposed to the church, was not ignorant of the real enemies that are out to destroy and out to harm the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul felt them himself. The enemy that is the devil. The Apostle said we are not unaware of his devices. The Apostle Paul knew that this devil was, as it were, hounding him and doing everything he can to disrupt and to harm Paul's missionary journeys. We're not ignorant of his devices, the Apostle said. When it comes to persecution, when the Apostle Paul talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, later the sword, verse 36, were killed all the day long. All the day long. The Apostle Paul wrote those words as a man with experience of them. I mean, his back had scars in them from the flesh that was ripped by the scourge. This is a man who would be executed by the state as a, as a criminal of the state. He was well aware of these, of these enemies. And in this text, he's not minimizing. He's not making light of it. As though these enemies aren't real and as though they don't painfully assault the church of God. But he takes his stand over and against them. And as it were, all of these forces arrayed before him, he says, if God be for us, what are these? What can they do? What are they against the living God who pledges himself to his people as their sovereign protector and guardian? What can they do? Who can be against us? Now this reality here in the text is what the Scriptures teach from beginning to end. When the children are learning Bible history, when the children are in catechism class and they're learning about the, the works of God in the Old Testament, they're learning precisely this, if God be for us, who can be against us? When they, when they read the story and they hear that real history of when David went up against Goliath, they are hearing this text, if God be for us, who can be against us? Here's Goliath. This giant of a man uh, coming out uh, in front of the forces of the Philistines, uh, mocking the Israelites, taunting the armies of the living God. And now Goliath, he puts some fear in the hearts of the children of Israel. They're quivering and shaking. They think that they're done for. But David knew this truth right here. If God be for us, who can be against us? And so David, in the fear of the Lord, trusting in, in this God, Uh, God uses him to slay the giant with a stone on his forehead and a sword at his neck, if God be for us. That history in the days of Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, when we read that all of these enemy nations uh, confederated together and they went up against the Mount Zion, up against the people of Judah. Real enemies, a real assault. So much so that Jehoshaphat, as the representative of the people, he prays to God and he says in his prayer, We have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. We are weak. We, we, we cannot stand for a moment in and of ourselves. In fact, we're so weak and we're so at a loss that Jehoshaphat says we don't, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. 
Because Jehoshaphat knew that this Lord God was the covenant God of Judah, who pledged to be their God. If God be for us, and when you read that history, how God acted for the salvation of Judah. Now this is a remarkable expression. This is a remarkable expression. God for us. And we don't want to consider this evening, we don't want to uh, speak those words as though it were a light thing. In fact, we may even say that this is a truth that can be hard to believe at times, if God be for us. In fact, there are times in the life of the child of God where he struggles to speak these words and struggles to believe these words, God for us and even God for me. By reason of what? That struggle. Well, if you read Romans 8 from the beginning, you're going to get to a section where the Apostle Paul opens the door to discuss sufferings. Verse 18, the sufferings of this present age. And that word sufferings there is full of tears and sorrow and hurt and pain and groaning and agony. When you think about what the children of God have to go through at times in this life, and how they ache and how they cry out to God, this is real stuff here in Romans 8. It's not naive. It's not the Apostle Paul naively saying these things, but knowing full well just how heavy it is in this present age for the children of God. And sometimes it's so heavy, and sometimes the trial is so dark, that the child of God may even be tempted to suppose not that this God is for us, but even tempted and, and, and to the point of despair to suppose that this is a God who is against us. I think that it may be said that that's the gravest temptation for the child of God. When the trial is so heavy... And the way is so dark, and the circumstances are so bleak that the son or the daughter of God is tempted to doubt this truth right here, and in fact, tempted to believe that God is against them. Now, this is not something with what the scripture with which the scriptures are not familiar. In fact, God in His grace has had words written of the believer exactly in moments like that when he feels that this God is against him. And the outstanding example of that is God's servant Job. Is there anyone like Job? God said. God's servant Job. Here's a man who in one day lost everything. All of his children dead. Now that's something that I, I simply cannot begin to understand. Like, I can't tell you what that's like. Not only that, but after that, the, the devil in the sovereign permission of God, he strikes Job with a disease so bad that Job wishes he were dead. He wishes he was never born. And God's servant Job, in that trial and in that valley, there were times when he felt that this God is not a God who is for him, but a God who is against him and a God who is out to do him harm. Job 6. 
Job 6 verse 4, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, the poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Job felt that God had arrayed himself in battle array with the bow pointed right at Job. Now that's in the Bible. And there are other places in the Bible where we find that kind of a low. And one of the reasons why God has put that in the Bible is for you, when you find yourself to be in the same strait and in the same valley, when these words in Job 6 or words in, like, in a Psalm 88 and they, they resonate with you and what you find out is that lo and behold, there have been children of God who've been in this valley too. There are other footsteps on this beaten path. People have been there and God's Word has something to say about it. Thank God for that. Another reason that, by reason of which it is difficult at times and a struggle to believe this, if God, this, this reality of God for us, is the, the fact of sin. Hard to believe when you consider our sin. What do we mean by that? Well, let's talk about who these us are. If God be for us, what can we say about them? Well, among other, among other things, we can say this. They're puny creatures of the dust that God does not need. God does not stand in need of us although, as though He is uh, not sufficient in Himself. So not only are these us puny creatures of the dust uh, of whom God does not stand in need, but these us are sinners. Real sinners. People who've broken God's law. People who have rebelled against God in Adam. People for whom not a day goes by where they do not in some way sin against this very God. People who do not fully believe God's Word and they do not fully love God and fully love their neighbor. People that say with the psalmist in 130, uh, If thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, O Lord, who shall stand? Or Psalm 143, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, O Lord, for in thy flesh and in thy sight shall no man living be justified. These us are those who say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, God for a wretched man, God for wretched sinners. Now that's remarkable, is it not? That God should be for us? What are we? And what have we done? And the answer is that what we have done is that we have sinned and are wholly undeserving that this God should have anything to do with us in a good way. That's another temptation too to be on guard against. And the temptation is to suppose that God for us is because of something that we have done. That's sheer pride. Or, or to suppose that this God for us is somehow triggered by how well we do and our performance in the day-to-day. If someone, for example, should suppose that this is something you have to work for, right? You have to work for it for God to be for you. Here we are in and of ourselves, sinners, but, look, but what if we should really try hard and really obey God out of the motivation of, of getting this God to be for us? 
eliciting His love by how well we perform. Well, the fact is that in and of ourselves, we are damn worthy sinners who can do nothing to make God be for us. There is simply nothing that we can do to make God be for us. That's a humbling truth. We can't do a thing to make Him be for us. And that brings out the sheer mercy of God and the unconditionality of His love. That whereas we in and of ourselves can't do anything to make God be for us, God, God says you don't have to. Because this is a God who has already revealed Himself as a God for us in and through the Son of His love, Jesus Christ. That's the wonder of love. That God, in, in, according to His purpose of election, gave His only begotten Son because He is for us already. And in the gift of His Son, the love of God is manifest. If God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 32 really answers that with another question, but again, not an uncertain question, but a question that's dripping with confidence and that's pressing a point. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. Now that is some God who is for us, who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. And that sparing not, that gift of the Son is the manifestation. It is the demonstration of the for us God. It is the manifestation of His love towards us sinners. By way of translation, it says in verse 32, in the original language, there's an even in that verse. So that, and by way of translation, His own Son is first in the text. To translate this expression more literally, it would read this way, He that even His own Son did not spare. And all the emphasis is being laid right on those words, even His own Son. You would underline, you would boldface, you would italicize that expression. Even His own Son did not spare. Well, let's consider that. Recognizing at the same time that this is the, that there, there's mystery here. This reality of the giving of the Son of God and the love of God manifest in the death of Jesus Christ is something that we'll never graduate from. And it's something that we'll never fully exhaust with our puny minds. This is that the subject of meditation for the Christian all of his life long. What we read right here in this text. Even his own Son did not spare. Well, who is this Son? Well, his own Son. God has a Son from all eternity, His own Son, and He loves Him. His own Son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, the eternal and natural Son of God, who was eternally with God before the worlds were made, and who in the fullness of time became man, became incarnate by uniting to Himself our human nature. Now that expression there, His own Son, what that is, what that is uh, proclaiming to us is the love of God towards this His own Son. 
When you read the word son there, you could, read, you could interpret beloved son. Even his own beloved son did not spare. A good father loves his children. And that's something to which we all say yes. A good father loves his children. A good father loves his son. In fact, that human love of a father towards his son is one of the deepest emotions of love that a person experiences in this, in this life, the love of a father towards his child. It's one of the deepest, most intimate bonds there is, which is also why it's so damaging and destructive when the father comports himself the other way to his son or to his daughter and shows them not love and how damaging that is for them. The point is the love of a father towards his son. A good father loves his son. And in human relationships, we know, we know about that. We, we have a sense of that truth. And the wonder here is that that fatherly love towards your son or towards your daughter is but a little, little glimmer, a dim reflection of the love of God the Father towards His Son, Jesus Christ, from all eternity. We read in John 1 that this Jesus Christ, who is the Word, that He is in the bosom of the Father. From all eternity, Jesus, the Son of God, in the bosom of the Father. There's this expression of love. There's this expression of fellowship between God and His Son. And that's something that God enjoyed from all eternity. Colossians 1 says of Jesus that Jesus is God's dear Son. Isaiah 42, God says of His servant, this is the one in whom my soul delights. Proverbs 8, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, speaking the wisdom there, capital W, I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him. Love and joy and closeness and fellowship of God towards His beloved Son. And that's what God said of Jesus when Jesus came into this world. When Jesus exited the waters of baptism, what did God say from heaven? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I love Him. And I've loved Him from all eternity. That one. That son, even his own son, did not spare, but delivered him up for us all. Did not spare. What that means, well, to spare is to refrain from that which would be to another's hurt. To prevent something that would be to another's hurt. It is a sparing of that of that one. The Apostle Paul in Corinthians says to the uh, says to the church, the reason I didn't come was to spare you, to spare you a severe a severe rebuke that you very well stood uh, deserving of. But to spare you, I did not come. To spare then is to save someone from loss, especially loss of life. And when the text says that God did not spare, implied there is that God could have if He had willed to. He could have spared His own Son if He had willed to, but He willed not to spare. And He spared Him not. From what? 
death on a cross, death on a cross and all of that evil and wickedness and injury and injustice that was dealt to the Son of God that led up to His death on the cross. God spared Him not from that, but delivered Him up for us all. That's, the, that's the, the other side of this parallelism here. Spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. And that word delivered there is a, is a deep word. Many times in Scripture we find that word translated deliver here used with regard to the sufferings and crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. That's the word used when the, when the gospel tells us that Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas delivered over Jesus to his enemies. We read that the Jews delivered Jesus up to the Gentiles. Same word. We read in the book of Ephesians that Jesus gave himself, delivered over himself to the death of the cross. Now we're going to pause there briefly and point out the importance of that. Jesus delivered Himself over. Jesus gave Himself willingly to the death of the cross. When we speak of the substitutionary atonement of the Lamb, remember that this Lamb went willingly. The Father did not force Him, did not compel Him, did not do something to the Lamb against His will, but the, the Lamb, the Son of God, said, Lo, I come to do Thy will, O God, in the volume of the book it is written of Me. And Jesus Christ, as the, the obedient Lamb of God, He willingly offered Himself up to this death on the cross. What the text teaches us here in verse 32 if someone were to ask you who ultimately delivered Jesus Christ to death, the answer is God Himself, the Father of Jesus Christ, spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. God was the one who delivered over His Son. God was the one who spared Him not. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Who hath believed our report? It hath it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, we read there. God's own beloved Son. Now go to the history now, and let's consider the history here. He did not spare his own son from what? He could have if he had willed to. But the Father did not spare his own son from the arrest in the garden. When Jesus Christ, when His hands were bound behind His back, wicked hands that were out to do wickedness against Him, God could have interposed if He had willed to. God could have delivered His Son from that if He had willed to. Even His own Son did not spare. He did not spare His Son. He did not interpose to prevent. When the only begotten Son of God was mocked and was ridiculed, made fun of by sinful men. Even His own Son did not spare, but delivered Him up for us all. When Jesus Christ, when the flesh of His back was ripped by the scourge, 
God could have interposed. He could have prevented that if He had willed to. But even His own Son did not spare. His own beloved Son. That God beheld being subjected to that ignominy and that pain and that hurt. Even His own Son did not spare, but delivered Him up for us all. When the arms of the only begotten Son of God were stretched out upon the beam of the cross, and the nails were driven through His hands and His feet, and the Son of God was lifted up and hanged between heaven and earth, bleeding and dying on the cross. God's own beloved Son. God could have prevented that if He had willed to, but He spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. But what ultimately was it that God spared not His own Son from? What was it ultimately that God delivered over His own Son to, and now we approach the great mystery of the cross? Mystery doesn't mean we don't, know, we don't know anything about it, but who can plumb these depths? What was it ultimately that God spared not His own Son from? And what God did not spare His own Son from is suffering under the very wrath of this God who loved Him from all eternity and whom Jesus Christ loved more than ever you loved God. The mystery is that this Son of God, God hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That this Jesus was made a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. That upon His own Son, God poured out the vials of His wrath and laid against Jesus Christ the full punishment and penalty that was due us because of our sin. That God exacted His own justice against His own Son, whom He loved with an everlasting love. The Catechism says that Jesus Christ has experienced and He submitted to inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies. God's own Son. And the mystery is that Jesus Christ in human nature, as He hanged there on the cross, what He experienced was not a Father for Him, but Jesus experienced a God against Him. A God who was cursing Him. A God who was putting Him to death for sin because Jesus Christ was reckoned a sinner by the imputation of our sins upon the head of the Lamb. The mystery of the cross is that this Jesus Christ, eternally beloved of God, cries out to His God and Father and says, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? The mystery is that in that moment, God did not stop loving Jesus. The mystery is that when God poured out upon His Son the vials of His wrath, it's not as though God stopped loving His Son. When it comes to what Jesus experienced, 
When it, when it comes to his place as a mediator and the execution of justice against Jesus Christ and what that meant for Jesus Christ. But don't suppose that God personally stopped loving his son. He loved him even as he died. And that God loved Jesus Christ even as his own son cried out unto him, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you done with me? Why have you abandoned me? God loved him in that moment. Even when Jesus felt a God who was against him. This is the truth and the mystery of which God gave Abraham a small creaturely glimpse in Genesis 22. That's why we read that passage. In fact, the word that the apostle uses, spared not, in the Greek translation of that Scripture in Genesis 22, that's the same Greek word when God says, Abraham, you've not withheld your own son, your own son from me. Genesis 22, God gave Abraham a glimpse of this. He comes to Abraham. Remember, Abraham had been waiting for the promised child for how long? And now here he is, the son of his love. He dangled him upon the knees. I mean, what, what, what does a good father do when, when a child is born, right? I mean, it's joy and rejoicing and, and there's love and you, you cherish the child and there's this fellowship and you, you play with the, the toddler upon the, upon the knee, all the rest. Well, now Isaac is perhaps in his teenage years and God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham. And Abraham, as an obedient servant, says, here I am. And God says, to I, God says to Abraham, and listen to these words now, they must have pierced Abraham's soul. Take now your son. And he doesn't stop there. God says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. He doesn't stop there either. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. God, as we're putting his finger right on Abraham's heart, right on that love of Father Abraham for his son Isaac, and offer him for a burnt offering, which meant sacrifice and which meant death. And Abraham packs up the, the wood and, and gets Isaac, and they set out with some servants, and for three days Abraham's thinking about this, that God has required him to put the knife through his own son whom he loves, and there they ascend Mount Moriah, and Abraham prepares the wood upon the altar, and Isaac is bound upon the altar willingly because God said so. And Abraham lifts up his arm holding the knife, his, his hand quivering, tears must have been streaming down his face as he's about to drive the knife through his son Isaac, his only son whom he loves. Isaac's looking right back at him. Well, God, of course, He spared Isaac from that. The point is, what was in Abraham's heart in that moment? What did Abraham feel in that moment as he prepared to sacrifice his own son whom he loves? Now, we know God is not like a man. But as one man said, uh, God is not a God of stone either. 
Thine own son, thine only son whom you love. What God did there was give Abraham a glimpse of what it was going to mean for God. What it was going to require of God. The cost that God was going to have to pay to save Abraham and to save his children and to save us from our sins. A dim creaturely glimpse of the heart of God that Abraham experienced in a creaturely measure. Why did not God spare His own Son? Why did God deliver Him up for us all? Because He's for us. Because He loves us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's why God did not spare His own Son. And what that text there and what this text teaches us here in Romans 8 teaches us is that it's because of the love of God for us that Jesus Christ submitted to death. Now maybe that sounds like basic to you, but is there anyone who supposes that the reason God loves us is because Jesus died for us? Is that how it is? That this God was a God against us until Jesus Christ, through His death, as it were, twisted God's arm to get God into loving us again? That's not how it works. What does John say? God so loved the world that He gave. The death of Jesus Christ, because of eternal love towards quite a world, lost and ruined in sin, fallen, guilty, corrupt. There's no fear of God before their eyes. But God loved us. And and out of love, God gave His Son. Now who is that for us? John 3.16, that word world by no means implies universal atonement. The point of that text is some kind of world to die for. Some kind of a world to love. Fallen in sin. This text here in the, in the context, it's, it's plain that Jesus Christ died and God spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for all of them whom He foreknew, whom He predestinated, whom He chose unto salvation in Jesus Christ. That word world in John 3.16 is the world according to the election of grace. But don't lose sight of the kind of people for whom Jesus died. Romans chapter 5, to paraphrase, it's, it's one thing for a man to give his life for a good man. You know, one thing for a man to give his life for a righteous man. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to improve ourselves and to, and to better ourselves and to make ourselves deserving of His love. He acted while we were yet sinners. That's love. Unconditional love. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. This for us all, this is the word of the believing church. And the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Jesus Christ belongs and is in this us. There is no one that trusts in Jesus Christ who is excluded from this us. Whether it be a Jew, whether it be a Gentile, whosoever believeth in the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
This is the expression of the believing church, of this reality that God has given us to know through faith, whereby we perceive and apprehend in the bleeding and dying Savior the heart of God revealed in love for you, believer, child of God, sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And the fact that this event is the great manifestation and demonstration of God's love for us is practically and pastorally instructive when we struggle to believe it. Or maybe you have a brother or a sister in the faith who struggles to believe it. Things are such a mess. Things are so turned upside down as though the world is crashing all around and the foundations are shaken. How do you impress this upon someone, right? How do, you, how do you make someone sure of it that this God is for us? And God's given us the answer. You direct that brother or sister, or you yourself, you look where? At that event that took place outside the walls of Jerusalem when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and His blood dripped to the earth. There it is. There is God's love for us revealed. Who hath believed our report? From a human perspective, it's a criminal who's being executed for crimes against uh, the Jews or against the Romans, and he's hanging between two malefactors. But to the eye of faith, what do we behold? The love of God expressed. This is how much I love you. Here I spare not my own son, but I deliver him up for you because I love you. This promise is a promise sealed in blood, sealed in the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That assurance there in the third place. We don't have to belabor the logic here. You under, you, the, the logic is readily ascertained. If God has given us the greatest how shall He not with, uh, with Him give us all the lesser things in the meantime of this present age? If God in His love has given us His own Son, His most precious, Him that is dearest to the heart of God, if God spared Him not, shall God now not give us all the things that we need in this present age? Shall He not see us through to the end? He that spared not his own son, but bought us at such a price as this? The answer is, of course God will give us freely with him all things. What? Give us what? Every blessing in Christ Jesus, every spiritual blessing, all of the fruit of the cross, all of the benefits that he obtained for us through his sufferings and through his death shall freely give unto us all things, all things that you, children of God, need to get you through this life into the glory that is to come. Freely give you all things, preservation, safekeeping, the fatherly guardianship of the God in heaven, until at last He leads you right in to that glory and that inheritance that is prepared for you in Jesus Christ. Shall freely give us all things, shall so see to it that these enemies that are against us and these things of this present age that weigh us down, rather than that, 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 that they should be against us and to our harm, He will make them work together for our good. 
It all belongs to this promise here in Romans chapter 8. And that word, notice, freely in verse 32. Freely give us all things. The reason why the King James Version puts that word freely there is because the word that the apostle uses for give, uh, the word give, he uses the word for give that has grace built right into it. So the King James translators recognizing that they say freely give. This is a free gift. This is an at no cost kind of gift here. It's, you see how it's all grace from beginning to end. God's purpose from eternity to glorify uh, Himself in the, in the demonstration of the riches of His grace. Freely give here. That means that the, the giving of Jesus Christ was pure gift. What did you do? Did you work for it? Did you do something uh, to elicit the gift of God's Son? No, it was pure grace. And all of the things that God gives us in Jesus Christ in this present age into eternity is free gift that comes at no cost to a people that are without money. Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, uh, who doesn't have any money, come buy milk and water without money, without price. It's all grace. This is the assurance This is the comfort. This is the consolation of the children of God in this present age. Be it the devil himself, be it the wicked world, be it the enemies of God's church, be it the sufferings, the adversities, the trials and tribulations of this present age, this Word of God stands for you who believe in Jesus Christ, that this God is for you. And if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not freely with him also give us all things? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we give thee thanks for thy word. Blessed unto our hearts and encourage us by this promise as we continue on this pilgrimage here below and lead and guide us and direct our faith to Jesus Christ who lives in heaven at thy right hand and who is bringing many sons and daughters to glory, ourselves included by thy grace. Forgive our sins and hear our prayer, for we ask these things in Jesus' name.